Hi, I'm Carla Bailo from the Center for Automotive Research. Welcome to the Car Podcast. Today we're going to talk about what's happening in the world of sales and uh, some of the headwinds from inflation. Talk about the increase of EVs and EV penetration and kind of what's happening globally as well as we see the economy and, and the impacts to the automotive industry. And we'll talk a little bit about the cruise accident. And of course, Elon Musk gets in the conversation. Stay tuned. Hello, I'm Carla Bailo, CEO for the Center for Automotive Research. Welcome to the CAR Podcast. And I'm joined today once again by Bernard Swicky, Director of Research. And we've got quite a lineup of topics to cover today, but I want to start with probably one of the most fun ones that's been in the news the last couple of days. And that is, of course, my favorite topic, Elon Musk. And now he's trying to back out of his deal with Twitter. Bernard, where do you think this is going to end up? Uh, Carla, I find myself in a position that I really don't like to be in, which is predicting what Elon Musk will do next. Um, So rather than go on the record about this, it's interesting. We've been studying Tesla for a very long time, uh, and there are a lot of unconventional approaches that have come out of the way that they do things. Uh, When it comes to Twitter, you know, frankly, I think there's going to be a little bit of a sigh of relief in the automotive industry if this deal does indeed fall through, uh, because you'd have someone who's closely aligned with one automaker owning a major media outlet. And I think it's better for the industry if those things are just a little bit more democratically distributed. Oh, that's I hadn't really thought about that as as a viewpoint. And, you know, there have been a lot of times where I've said uh, Elon's not going to win this one, but I've always been wrong. I, I think this time I'm going to go on the other side and, and you know, that say he is going to win this time and maybe I'll be wrong again. We'll see. But I think I'll be right, at least based on the little bit of information that I've read so far. But it's it provides us with lots of amusement in, in these days of shortages and workforce issues and and now compounded with inflation. So on that note, let's just move right into sales, sales for the first quarter and, you know, sales through then May and June. What are we seeing? I've, I know that you have all the data at your fingertips. I've also heard that production's getting back on track. We're getting those semiconductors back in. And that might partly be due to the fact that personal electronic sales are so low that or have dropped so far that, you know, now we have capacity in some of the semiconductor shops. I don't know for sure, but that's at least what I'm hearing from the semiconductor industry itself. But what did the sales look like through June? And and then what does it look like for the rest of the year? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Carla, we have seen a slight decrease in the wait times for order fulfillment for semiconductors. And as you mentioned, that's partially caused by slackening demand on the consumer electronics side. Uh, For the market, you know, this is something that'll impact us gradually because, of course, now that you're placing an order, you'll get that shipment eventually, you'll produce the vehicles, and then they go out to be sold. So there's quite a bit of a lag from the point when chip supply improves and vehicle sales actually rise. Uh, In this case, so far through the first half of the year, we're about one and a half million units below prior year levels in the United States. And of course, the big question is what happens in the second half? And in addition to the semiconductor situation, we've also got rising interest rates 
and potentially a recession, which could damper the demand from consumers. And so far, we've kind of been forecasting that everything that the industry can build will be snapped up by consumers. And there is now sort of this emerging question when you talk to people, is the industry soft enough right now where perhaps what we're producing is ultimately going to be what the market is demanding, and therefore we may no longer have as much of a supply crunch as before. Now, for me, I plan to watch two things. Uh, one, vehicle prices, two, vehicle inventory, uh, because I think those things will tell you where this is going before the actual levels of vehicle sales do. And when it comes to inventory, right now we've been about the same level for the last six months, so there really isn't a lot of improvement we're seeing there. Uh, and vehicle pricing continues to be heavily skewed to the high end for certain automakers. It's over $50,000 a unit. So we're not seeing that softness now, but I have to tell you for me, I might be watching those two variables before I see what happens with the actual vehicle sales in the second half. Yeah, and, and in June, I believe was the first time I started hearing some of the economists saying there's two reasons for lower sales. One is the semiconductor shortage, and second is inflation and people's pocketbooks. Um, when we look at inflation of 8%, and it's been going on for several months, heck, when I go to the grocery store, I'm, I'm just amazed. Week over week, it seems prices are increasing. I, I bought cherries yesterday. I love cherries, by the way. I bought them, and uh, when I put them on the scale and, and you know got the barcode to scan it myself, $11.75. And I just thought, oh my goodness, I love cherries, but this is ridiculous. I bought them anyway, just because I love them. But anyway, you know, it, it's just sticker shock no matter where you go now. And that's taking a bite out of people's disposable income. Now, it's interesting, you know, we're talking about interest rates, but when you're looking at people buying cars as expensive as they are, I bet those people aren't financing. What are you hearing in that regard? Yeah, uh, we do have a fair number still of cash sales. Uh, but to your point, Carla, yes, absolutely. What has happened recently is as we have been selling more expensive vehicles, we're catering to a smaller part of the overall economy. And so, you know, for me, this is an unanswered question in 2022. Are we more shielded from economic fluctuations than we had been in the past? Uh, the median household income of a family buying a utility vehicle is at about $100,000 a year. So there's a greater chance that families of that income level will be less impacted by some of the inflation that we're seeing and also uh, by the overall softening in the economy. You know, and it's, it's interesting, we are seeing price decreases in some goods. Uh, for example, you know, mortgage rates are up, housing starts are down, the price of lumber has been falling. Uh, so it is kind of distributed around the economy, uh, but overall, there's a lot of reason, I think, to be skeptical uh, that we're really going to turn this around this year. And gas prices are starting to fall. We're getting some relief there. And President Biden is over negotiating with OPEC, hopefully as we speak, to, to try to increase supply. But it, it's not so easy to just, you know, up your supply. But, you know, that will help. But we're seeing with these increased fuel prices, VMT is down and down pretty significantly, not as low as it was in 2020, but still down about 6%. And that means not as much maintenance, not as much aftermarket. 
I mean, there's many different factors at play here than just inflation of one commodity, meaning vehicle price. Yeah, absolutely. And so we at CART track essentially a typical consumer basket when it comes to a family's monthly budget. And for a long time, the, the big increase area that we'd been seeing was in the cost of healthcare, And, you know, now that is spread among just about every part of that basket of goods that the average family is purchasing. Uh, and so what it does is when you have this sort of almost across the board increase, that means there's less available for everything. Uh, and I think essentially what's going to happen is the families with the tighter budgets are more likely to maintain used car status, keep their cars longer, buy a used car instead of new. And then it's just a question of how deep is that impact on the higher income households that are now kind of the bread and butter of automotive sales. And EV sales are increasing drastically too. And those even have a higher average price than an internal combustion engine. Is it the same demographic that's driving that too? Is it, you know, higher income folks, higher household income and... You know, first tell me, what are the numbers for EV sales increasing this year so far? Right. So, Carla, when we talk about pure EVs, just the pure battery electric vehicles, uh, they're up about 73% over the same time last year. And, of course, last year was a big increase over the year prior to that. Uh, so consumers are still showing a lot of desire to buy those vehicles. You know, right now we could sell more of the, those vehicles if we could produce more of them. And a reason we aren't producing more of them is most of the time number of batteries that are available, um, which is one reason we're seeing this explosion in investment in battery plants. But right now it appears if you can put an electric vehicle on the dealership floor, you're probably going to sell it, especially now that we're selling electric utilities, electric pickup trucks, electric vehicles that are more in the bread and butter segments that people actually buy, as opposed to electrifying economy cars, which is more you know, what we were doing in the infancy days of the electrification of the industry. And that's opened up the electric market to the mainstream buyer and not just a fringe. And I think that's the main reason we're seeing so much consumer acceptance of these vehicles the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, you're offering the consumer something that's fun to drive and can fit their lifestyle. You know, I was up at a, um, there's a big race that goes every year from Boyne City to Elk Rapids to Northport and, and back through Charlevoix. And so I went and looked at some of these boats, <laughs> which are huge, with huge motors. You can only imagine their carbon footprint. I'd hate to guess it. But a couple of them were pulled by Hummer EVs and Ford EVs. So I figured they were just trying to balance their carbon footprint, you know. But here you have a, a you know, a product that weighs a, a ton, a whole lot, being pulled by these EVs. The more that we see the usage like this, I think the more the consumer is going to get, um, get used to, you know, the understanding that an EV can fit their lifestyle. Yeah, and we are seeing that in the consumer surveys. Uh, a lot of folks are more willing than in the past to accept the purchase of an electric vehicle as their next vehicle. As ever, range is a critical factor because uh, there's still an impression of an inadequate charging system around the country. But it's interesting how much more open-minded the average consumer is to this product than they had been in the past. Yeah, and it reminds me when you were talking a little bit about batteries and supply chain, we'll talk about that in the next podcast because I think that is really interesting and recycling. This is something that 
we got to look at the entire the entire um, ecosystem of, of car batteries. So let me just give some figures of global sales. It, it's really kind of interesting. North America is, is down 4.5% since last year. U.S. sales are down about 25%. But if you look globally, China's down 10, Japan's down 10, Brazil's down 23, Chile 35, UK 25, Germany 10, France 17. So, I mean, these are real numbers. There are only two countries that I could find that had an increase, and it was India. They had a huge increase in May, but their May 2021 figure was incredibly bad. And um, Argentina, up 5%, but that's related, I think, a little bit to their economy, and their market's pretty small. So um, I found that interesting. And then when we look at the global um, production figures, they're all slightly lower than than uh, 2021. So even with this latest uptick in availability of semiconductors, we're still seeing a shortfall in 2022, which matches what we say here at CAR. We show figures of 2022 being fairly low in comparison, and then not a rebound till 2024. Maybe we'll get the semiconductor um, situation fixed before then. But right now, that's you know, kind of the numbers that we're seeing on a global level, too, which indicates it's not only here in the U.S. that's feeling the impact, but it, it's everywhere. Prices are increasing everywhere. Yeah, and Carla, on your note of prices increasing everywhere, uh, for vehicles produced in the United States, the five countries from which we get the most content for those vehicles are obviously the United States, Canada, Mexico, China, Germany, and Japan. And right now, all of these countries have the highest inflation they've had in 40 years, which means, you know, vehicles are more expensive everywhere around the world. And these markets are facing some of the same uh, headwinds that that we are. Uh, This hyperinflation is far from an American problem. In fact, I saw a statistic recently that of the top 20 global economies, when it comes to inflation, the United States ranked eighth. So almost middle of the pack. Uh, and so this is definitely a global problem. And essentially, the larger your economy, the more you're struggling with this. For sure. Now let's go to the other hot story that's happened in the past week, and that's about the cruise uh, collision. From what I understand, in San Francisco, from what I understand, the cruise vehicle was attempting to make a left-hand turn and stopped in the intersection. They're not sure why it stopped, but the car coming the other direction was speeding and uh, just ran into it. And what I find most interesting about this, and I've spoken about it several times, is when you have a computer-operated vehicle and a human-operated vehicle, you never know what that human's going to do. And this is a perfect example. Had that human-driven vehicle been computer-operated, it would have probably seen that vehicle sitting there and not run into it. Now, I I know there were injuries sustained. I hope the people are fine because it wasn't that super high speed, but there's been very little that's come out on that, I'm sure, for very good reason. But as we see more and more um, computer-operated vehicles integrating with human-operated vehicles, I think it's going to be necessary to think about these human-operated vehicles and how we can retrofit them in some way so that they have some sort of eagle eye or some kind of vision that can help the driver. Because it's going to be a long time till we have ADAS in a lot of vehicles. And the affordability factor comes in when you've got the average age of a vehicle of 12 years. So many of them are many much older. 
So those retrofit kits are going to really become important in terms of communicability. This is my crazy view. You, do you think similarly, differently? What, what do you think, you know, seeing what's happening now? Carla, you mentioned that there's not a lot of information about this crash, so it's hard to speak definitively. But my understanding is that the human-operated vehicle um, was speeding and essentially went straight when it was in a right-turn lane. Oh, gee. Uh, you know, and so what that... I hadn't heard that little tidbit. Well, okay. yeah, absolutely. And so what it does is it really makes me feel very sorry for the people programming the autonomous vehicle because, you know, you have enough that can go wrong and be unpredictable just as a part of normal driving. But now you have to account for human operated vehicles that are doing something that is against the rules of the road and actually illegal, a ticketable offense. But, you know, a human driver seeing that has more of an instant capacity to react um, that that autonomous vehicle is counting on code written by a human who has to somehow account for these unpredictable and illegal behaviors by other vehicles on the road. Uh, you know, and it is for me, you know, maybe one of those final obstacles to when we think about level five autonomy many years down the road. And how do we truly have a vehicle where the occupant just doesn't have the option to steer it? it you know, it's, it's not really a factor of regular driving and those sort of day-to-day -day interactions. It's what if you come upon an accident site and it's, you know, blizzard conditions and people are going in the shoulder to avoid it, police are directing traffic and so on. How on earth do you write code that can adapt to that kind of situation, right? And so I think that's why it is an exponential leap in terms of the difficulty of getting from level two to three, you know, or three to four. But then that final step, frankly, I have doubts that I'll see that in my lifetime. I have a feeling, you know, for the rest of my life, I will at least have to take over in those kinds of situations. Yeah, when I think about the technology and the edge cases and the one-offs that have to be considered, I mean, there's two things you can think about in this case. One is, as I mentioned, retrofitting the legacy vehicle, but the other is maybe that cruise vehicle should have seen this car and moved out of the way if there was real estate. I don't know. But I'm sure, you know, the programmers are going to have to do their artificial intelligence and machine learning because this is an edge case that hasn't been thought about. And every time one of these happens, the car gets smarter. Well, I think that's about all the time we have for today. Thanks so much, Bernard. Thank you, Carla.